This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, our weekly news debrief with Dave Thompson and Madeline reviews the new satirical film Triangle of Sadness, which skewers the ultra-rich. But we are going to start by learning about victimized children. Sarah Matthews is the executive director of the Red River Children's Advocacy Center. And she joins Prairie Public CEO and the host of the Prairie Pulse television show, John Harris, for a discussion about the work that they do. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Yes, thanks for having me. Tell us about the Red River uh, Children's Advocacy Center. What is it? When was it founded? And, and what does it do? So the Advocacy Center is a center where we see children who are victims of sexual abuse, abuse, neglect, and exploitation. And what we do is use a multidisciplinary approach to um, help them be comfortable and uh, provide an environment that is safe for them to tell their allegations and um, the abuse that they've endured. We have been around since 2004. We were founded as a 501c3 nonprofit, and I recently became the executive director in April of 2022. So our services are very unique. We often get victims who are not ready to really tell their story to anybody and in those environments where it would typically occur with law enforcement or social workers. So we provide that safe environment for them to come into and we provide advocacy, interviewing with them, mental health services. We partner with Sanford Care Clinic to do the medical examinations that are necessary at times and then law enforcement, social services, prosecutors and others. Mm-hmm. So how many offices do you have? Uh, we have two offices, one in Fargo and one in Grand Forks. Is it just the cities, metros, or do you get some other counties involved? Um, so right now, our statistics show that we have conducted interviews and services to people in 48 counties surrounding the area. Take me through the process of when you get a referral of child neglect or abuse. Well, our referrals come straight from law enforcement or social services. Um, Those are the only referrals that we're allowed to take in at this time. And what happens is they contact our program coordinator, whether it's on the web to schedule or gives us a call and gives us some information on the case and what they need, if they need a female interviewer or a male interviewer. And then uh, we schedule it as soon as possible. Within about 24 hours to 48 hours, we can typically schedule their forensic interview for that time. Well, with that said, can you talk about what the forensic interview, what that is and how you conduct it? Yeah. So the forensic interview is a highly trained interview uh, system, if you will. And the interviewer has to go through many classes in education to become a forensic interviewer. And what they do is, um, once they've greeted the child, they bring a child to an interview room where there is video cameras, recording equipment, um, and then a link to a television in another room where our forensic team, which I mentioned earlier was prosecution and social work and law enforcement and the others, where they are able to see and hear in real time the interview going on. Because we need a team approach in order to know how to help the family and help the child, and then seek prosecution or justice afterwards as well. And what we do is we burn that disc for law enforcement after the interview is done. During the interview, the interviewer um, starts off by testing out communication skills with the child. So they have a casual conversation back and forth, um, just how their day is going or anything else like that, and start to Um, see if they can recall events, if they can predict future, if they can remember colors or rooms and things like that from other fun things in their um, lives in order to know if they're capable of conducting the interview at the time. If they're not, we stop the interview and they come back another day, another year, another time when they're able to do so effectively. Uh, If they are able to disclose, our interviewer does go through sort of like an hourglass um, technique where they start at a broad 
uh, topic and then they narrow that down and then they start another broad topic and narrow it down and then come back to key points in the interview so that it's sort of breaking uh, little barriers and uncomfortable moments um, lightly so that the child is less traumatized. So what age groups are you normally working with? So we see uh, children from ages three and up. Um, and we see patients who are older than 18 as well, depending on the situation, uh, if they have cognitive uh, impairment or they are vulnerable themselves, we will take those those older people on as well. How many cases do you take on or see per year? So in 2022, we saw 805 individuals for forensic interviews, and we provided over 2,200 mental health services to people. Hmm. Have cases increased over the past few years, uh, With I guess with COVID years, uh, since that's what we're talking about? Yeah, actually they did. In 2019, you know, we saw about um, 350 individuals for forensic interviews. And that skyrocketed to closer to uh, 750 during the pandemic. So we saw almost, you know, double what we what we were normally seeing during the pandemic. And now we're sort of going down a little bit to that normal range again after that spike. Do you have uh, anything that really contributed to that just because of COVID everybody was yeah so I guess our only assumption could be that their home they were home during the pandemic with their perpetrators typically 90% of people know their perpetrator and uh, being locked down during a pandemic with them with no way of of being in the school system or anything like that caused a lot of influx once people found out Okay. Have you seen mental health issues increase in children since the pandemic? Yes, um, I would say so. You know, with with social media and also um, with um, devices and electronics and things like that, kids are isolated. You know, the social skills aren't aren't there. Throw the pandemic in there, um, mental health um, issues. All of those things are just kind of recipe for disaster. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about? You know, why are children so vulnerable even even today in our society? Because children are good. They're generally good and they have great hearts and they believe anything anybody will tell them. They want to see the good in people and they're a very easy target because of that. Mm-hmm. So how do you stay focused in your job when you really see, I guess, bad cases of abused children? And how do you and your counselors deal with this? Yeah, great question. So we have a um, a process that we call secondary uh, trauma stress. And so what we do is provide training to those staff and support systems for those staff to deal with their secondary trauma. And we do that on a daily, weekly basis and check in often. And then we also have outside uh, resources for them to to access if they need. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, and especially during, you know, you jumped up, you said from 300 and something to, to 805 in, in uh, 2020. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that just has to uh, be stressful for your, for your employees. Yeah, and we get subpoenaed to court quite a bit um, as well uh, as witnesses to the interview. And um, so not only are they doing their daily job talking to kids and documenting those stories and providing mental health services, but they're also running to court to and from, hearing it over again um, and, you know, trying to help seek justice on those cases. And sometimes it's difficult when cases aren't... um, you know, the perpetrators aren't, uh, you know, locked up or put away. They um, have a hard time with those types of cases. And a lot of that ha- doesn't have to do with necessarily our interview process. It's other factors that are involved in that. And it's very difficult for our staff to absorb. Does your organization ever facilitate rebuilding of families or after bad things happen? Or does it depend or does that depend on the individual situation or what? Uh, Yeah, it depends on the individual situation. Um, So if the advocate can provide support and services to the family to help them in the situation that they're in, that doesn't usually need to go any further than our family advocate because they do provide ongoing support for months, six months afterwards, however long it takes to make sure that that family is feeling um, comfortable and maintaining, you know, their healthy relationship with their child and services that they have. If our advocate uh, cannot do something, they would partner 
partner with social services to try to get those types of supports. And then it's in social services hands to help uh, rebuild that family up at that time. And typically they're involved as they're part of our art MDT team. Your organization is not the one that you would call to report child abuse. Correct. It would be, you're you're referred services. to. Yeah. Yep. Child Protective Services is um, where you would call to do that. You could either fill out a 960 form on the government website or you can contact them. Mm-hmm. Is it sometimes difficult uh, to find out what exactly has happened? You talk about the forensic interview and how do you and others really get to the bottom of that? You explained the interview process, but uh, that's got to be difficult sometimes to really get to the bottom of of what happened and how it what happened yeah so our interview process does not um, beg or or prompt the child to have a response so um, what we would do if it was difficult to get to the part where we're hoping for a law enforcement wants us to get to in an interview it can take a very long time maybe two hours sometimes they take three hours and in that time you know the child's playing with play-doh and talking to this person as just a general casual conversation you know it's it's they don't understand necessarily exactly why they're there or exactly what we want to hear because we don't tell them that that would mess our whole investigation up, and so um, getting to that point is sometimes not occur- doesn't occur. Sometimes uh, the child will leave and not disclose information, and then several years later, maybe they're ready to come and talk about it, or months later after counseling or whatever the case may be, they may then disclose at that time, or they may never disclose because disclosing is very difficult. Well, Sarah, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for what you're doing. Yes, thank you so much for having me. That was Prairie Pulse host John Harris in conversation with the Red River Children's Advocacy Center Executive Director, Sarah Matthews. Prairie Pulse airs Thursdays at 8 o'clock Central, and you can watch all episodes on our YouTube channel. Still to come on Main Street, a film festival and suicide prevention. Support for Pray Public is provided by the Bush Foundation, investing in great ideas and the people who power them in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and the 23 Native nations that share that same geography. Learn more at bushfoundation.org. Support for Pray Public is provided by AARP North Dakota, fighting fraud, promoting financial resilience, and offering local events designed with you in mind. AARP North Dakota is helping your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. Learn more at aarp.org nd. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. First Link, Prairie Public, and Tellwell are partnering on a student film festival, which is looking for contributions now, short videos on the themes of suicide prevention and mental health. Director of Radio Bill Thomas visits with Jeremy Brown, the Outreach Director for First Link, and Dr. Tim Wallenzine, the Education Services Manager, right here at Prairie Public. So you're asking people to put in films about mental health, wellness, suicide prevention. Uh, what, what is the deadline? What kind of things are you looking for? Uh, And Jeremy, why don't you go first? Yeah, so this is an opportunity for young adults in high school or college age to uh, give us their perspective of what they're seeing in the world, what they have experienced themselves with mental health and with suicide, um, and sort of the impact that that has on us as a community at large, but also just for them as a generation, a younger generation growing up in the world the way that it is today and sharing that perspective with us. Um, They have until April 10th to submit and then we are going to be judging, and we'll have them at the film festival at the Fargo Theater on April 13th. And somebody wins? What? There's a, like a prize or something? Yeah, there sure is. We're going to judge these films. Um, we're going to be looking at the story they tell, um, a little bit at the editing, uh, but primarily we're just looking for a really passionate story that makes a good impact, and the winner gets $1,000. Oh, cool. So, uh, Tim, tell me uh, why Prairie Public got involved with this. Well, we got involved last year in the in the first annual uh, student film festival uh, competition, um, and uh, we we helped promote the event. We helped to share it out to teachers, to students, and people in in our uh, our world of education. Um, and and again, this is a student oriented contest. Yep. 
Yep, and 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 that and that you know we're hoping that teachers would encourage students uh, since it is you know something that's that's that relatively easy to do. Um, and one of our focuses here at, at the Education Services Department is on youth media and, and supporting educators and students in creating media, media content of any kind. Um, and this, this fits right in with one of our, uh, with, with one of our missions uh, here and, uh, and definitely you know, allows us to, to, to help establish good relationships with kids and teachers uh, around the topic of creating media. Uh, and so this year we have uh, participated in the promotion and the, and the, and the marketing of the program uh, a little bit earlier and a little bit more broadly, and that we're hoping that that will turn into even more uh, response and more participation by, by people in our region. So again, this is a, a film contest uh, led by First Link and uh, Prairie Public and Tellwell, which is a production studios, are participating in it as well. And uh, Jeremy, tell me again, what are the what are the age parameters? It's students, but which students? Yeah, so we're looking for students from anywhere in North Dakota or Minnesota. We have two categories. So for high school, it's students between 8th and 12th grade. And we're looking more for stories around stress and general mental health, sort of how prevalent it is in the world. And then for college-age students, it can be any uh, college, university, technical, or trade school student between 18 and 25 in North Dakota and Minnesota. And for those categories, we're sort of looking for more about suicide, watching for the warnings, uh, giving those tips to speak up and save a life if you see some of those warning signs. So you've mentioned this is the second year of this, and I wondered to uh, give people an idea of kind of what the possibilities are, if you could talk a little bit about last year's. Uh, Tim, you saw them, I know, uh, and like, what were, what were they like? How how long were they? What, what were, how did they look? Well, they looked good, and and they were personal stories um, that 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 young people created. They're short videos, I believe. Uh, tell me, can Jeremy, how what are the lengths of those? Nine up to ninety seconds for high school, up to three minutes for college age. Right, and they oh, so really short. So this is really not short. a documentary. No, not <laughs> at all. It's a personal story. Again, um, you know, they were they were usually done in in the students. Uh, uh, environment, uh, you know, a, a teenager's environment, whether it was at home, whether it was at school, uh, in the community, uh, in a car, some of them I remember uh, uh, filming in a car while driving and talking with, with, with their, their peers. Um, but they, they were very effective at, at, at telling personal stories around the topics. And, um, you know, we, there, there weren't a lot of entries but the ones that were submitted were, I thought, very well done, and that were very focused on, on the topics that you know that were that were shared about about the the contest itself. So, Jeremy, as somebody working, you work at First Link. Um, what what did you think of the content? That- you've seen in the past here? I was really impressed. I thought that they were really impactful stories. Uh, The winners last year were a a group of students from Grand Forks. They took home the $1,000 prize, and their video was really just them standing in front of the camera with these cards, sort of talking about the statistics of the prevalence of mental health, and then dropping the card and sharing a little bit about their personal experience and how it was relevant to the statistics they shared. So really, it was homemade. It was very simple, very quick for the students to put together, but incredibly impactful for us watching. So, and again, we're talking about a contest where you can submit one of these uh, short videos and uh, possibly win a big prize. And, yes. and uh, they're about mental health, mental wellness, uh, suicide. And um, the, the, uh, in, in terms of, Tim, you talked about Prairie Public's interest in youth media production. Uh, what, what do you see here in terms of the kind of thing that bubbles up? Uh, people have like a basic skill to communicate because they've grown up with this kind of digital media? Yes. Um, Young people today, uh, teenagers, young adults are creating media already. And and now uh, it's it's easier than ever to share the media that you create, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, on social media, whether it's on a on a, a, a platform that is comfortable for the students, whether it's for a class or 
for for anything. I mean, it's easy to easy to create um, video, audio, uh, any kind of a small short segment that is that is shareable, and 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 people are interested in how much play it gets, how widespread can my media get, who's going to see it, and how many how many people like it, how do they interact with it. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the metrics of, uh, of, of sharing content like that is something that we're very interested in. Why do things get noticed? Why do they get shared? Why do people like them? How do they interact with them? And what, we, what we're interested in is, um, is, is equipping teachers and students with skills, uh, with, with, um, with a, a sort of a best practices uh, about creating media uh, that's that's uh, you know that's got some integrity and that is productive and that is shareable and you know appropriate for uh, for for whatever audience that they're targeting. So that's something that we're really interested in. We want to be able to share that more uh, on on our platforms. You know, we we want teachers to to be empowered to um, help their students create media. In positive ways. That's Tim Olenzine, who's director of the education division at Prairie Public, and uh, Jeremy Brown is outreach director at FirstLink. Uh, let's back up a bit and tell me why FirstLink. What, what does FirstLink do, and why how this fits into that? Yeah, so FirstLink really has uh, this pillar of wanting to provide support to those who are in need of of help and hope, and so we do that by answering the two one one information and referral helpline for local community resource information and the 988 Crisis and Suicide Lifeline for Mental Health Crises. And really, part of this mission that we have to provide help and hope is to build communities and networks of support where talking about your mental health, having conversations about suicide isn't scary, um, it isn't so taboo. So these stories that we're hoping to see from these younger folks, we're hoping that will help us break down that stigma and make it easier for us to have those conversations. We, we all may just assume we kind of have a sense of that stigma, but can you talk about that a little more? Have, has that been changing, uh, the idea that it's shameful to have a mental health issue? You know, I think so. I think in the younger generation, what we're seeing on social media um, in schools is that they are okay talking about it, that they're okay saying, you know what, this is a really bad day for me, and I'm not doing all right, and I want to have a conversation about it so it doesn't continue to affect me. Um, I think that that shame that your mental wellness can't be, you know, like your physical wellness. We sprain our ankle. We need to take care of it and heal it. I think this younger generation sees that it's the same way with our mental health. So uh, when, when you have the contest completed, you've judged, you've picked a winner and stuff, you, what, what are you going to do with them? How are you going to get them out there? Yeah. Well, at First Link, we're going to put them up on all of our social media. Right now, if you go to YouTube and search for First Link, you'll be able to find a playlist with all of last year's entries. So we'll do that exact same thing with this year's entries as well and continue to kind of showcase them on our social media throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and again, Tim, maybe you, you could give us the rundown on uh, the nuts and bolts of the contest. There's two categories. As Jeremy mentioned, the deadline is the 10th of April. Uh, students need to submit their videos through uh, the First Link website, which goes right through Tellwell. Tellwell is uh, is the studio that's assisting with um, organizing, with uh, communicating with students, with making sure that the that the piece is in the proper format, and that they get organized for the the judging the competition. You said ninety seconds for the high school that's and right. three minutes. minutes Max, for the college level. That's right. Okay. Anything else that uh, people should know about this? Well, if you're interested in seeing these films when they're done, uh, we are going to be showing the films at the Fargo Theater on the big screen on April 13th, and tickets go on sale. Uh, They're already on sale on our website. You can go to myfirstlink.org slash filmfestival to purchase tickets or submit a film, and uh, the tickets are $15. Myfirstlink.org. That's right. Okay. Thank you, Jeremy Brown and Tim Wollensine. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come on Main Street, Matt O'Lean and Dave Thompson. But first, this news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. You might have a feeling of deja vu. The National Weather Service is predicting accumulating snow Sunday into Monday. It's an eerily uh, similar system and uh, 
uh, kind of the same question marks as uh, going into the last one as well. Alex Edwards is with the National Weather Service in Bismarck. Looking fairly likely that uh, accumulating snow should uh, develop over most of uh, southern North Dakota, and I'm talking even up to uh, approaching the kind of Highway 2 area, but uh, focusing on the uh, Interstate 94 area, north and south of there, and maybe especially south of there, uh, could see uh, moderate to even heavy snow at times uh, on Sunday, Sunday night. And so we'd be talking um, certainly shovelable and plowable snow. As to how much snow will fall, Edward says it's a little too soon to tell, however. It's looking like a strong possibility of a wide, widespread swath of uh, at least four inches of snow. And then uh, certainly uh, a decent amount of people will see at least six inches. Um, and then where heavier snow bands may set up um, closer to eight to ten inches is certainly possible. But uh, for now, a solid shot of uh, widespread four inches or more. Edward says wind will again be an issue with this system. North Dakota's House and Senate Majority Leaders say work is being done on a tax relief package that will include both income and property tax relief. Here's House Majority Leader Mike LaFour. Our cash position is is one in which the uh, we're in a position to be able to return dollars to the to the taxpayers, which I think is extremely important. LaFour and Senate Majority Leader David Hogue say the package will be around $600 million split equally between income and property tax relief. And Fargo has had chicken a chicken ordinance since 2017, uh, 2017, despite initial opposition from people who didn't want farm animals in their neighborhood. That's changed and has become more popular as a result of the sticker shock price of eggs. Fargo's ordinance was is, uh, regulated closely, requiring everything from a permit to a city inspection in order to install a chicken coop. Only four chickens are allowed, and the coop must be in a backyard. Fargo resident Amy Nephew says their hens are a family affair, so much so that the hens have names. It's quite sad, Tyra. They are chicken tender, chicken nugget, chicken parmesan, and chicken alfredo. Nephew says the chickens are a pretty good deal for them. From what I can see, the backyard chicken ownership is growing nationwide just because people like me are wanting to supplement the cost of eggs and also just taking joy in, you know, raising your own animals and being more connected with where your food comes from and being connected with, you know, what goes into that product. Nephew says on average, the chickens lay four eggs a day. That's about two dozen eggs a week, more than the family uses. So for a small fee, she provides a dozen eggs to a friend or co-worker. That fee is used to buy feed for the hens, and at month's end, it's only costing them $5. West Fargo and Moorhead are among the latest communities looking at the possibility of allowing backyard chickens. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. And joining me now from our Bismarck studio is News Director Dave Thompson. He joins us once a week to talk about the week's biggest news stories. Dave, thanks for joining us today. You are very welcome, Ashley. A couple of interesting ones regarding education. Mm -hmm. The state legislature is considering a tuition freeze, and college presidents seem to be, I would say, almost uniformly in support of this. Absolutely. And One thing a tuition freeze does, it means that, well, there's no more money out of pocket for a student, but it keeps us competitive with Minnesota. Minnesota legislators are looking at some ways to keep their students in Minnesota because some of their students from Minnesota are going to North Dakota. So there's a, there's a little competition there. So having a tuition freeze is an incentive for people to come to an NDSU, a UND, um, Mayville State, or maybe the North Dakota State College of Science. Right. For example, if Minnesota did a tuition freeze, um, NDSU President David Cook said 53% of NDSU students come from Minnesota. So then they might not if they can get it cheaper in Minnesota. That's correct. And at one point there was a a move in Minnesota to stop that um, cross Border payment plan that they had worked out where some oh, the reciprocity? North Dakota, the reciprocity where some Minnesota students could attend North Dakota schools cheaper and same with 
North Dakota students attending Minnesota. So there's a little bit of friendly competition. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, certainly. Uh, passed the House now being considered by the Senate mm-hmm. on a $47 million price tag. Uh, talking about the uh, presidents and presumably the students would be pretty in favor with this. What about some of the other issues that could result from a tuition freeze, though? Maybe professors uh, won't get uh, increased pay or maybe there could be some building costs. Well, Are see, there? Th- th- that's all being a factor in because there's money in the higher ed budget for increased pay for professors, instructors, and other staff. Okay. There's also money in the budget. And they've got an interesting thing about college buildings. You know, normally yeah. uh, when, when uh, Representative Nathy called it kind of like the Hunger Games, they're all competing for one. We used to call it a Christmas tree bill. Mm. But now what they're saying, okay, you've got a project, you've got a building, we're going to give you four years. We're going to say, okay, you raise money for the first two years, and then the second uh, two-year period, then you'll get the state match. So, oh, okay, and that's upwards of three hundred thirty million across the state. That's correct. Okay, and I imagine that match would would be a little bit different depending on student body size and everything. Yes, it would be, but okay. uh, it wouldn't be overly burdensome. But there would be a match requirement. Okay, and uh, this is now being considered by the Senate. Any indication which way they'll go? Do you think? I don't know, but uh, there seemed to be a lot of support in the Senate for doing something with the colleges like that. And they're, they're thinking it's forward-looking to have that four-year building thing. But the tuition freeze, since the state of North Dakota does have cash, looks like a good option. Okay. And the Senate had a first hearing on it today, just an overview. That's the 40,000-foot mm-hmm. level. And now a subcommittee will take a look at it more and get into more of the details. Yeah. There was obviously uh, a bit of an enrollment um, concern during the pandemic. Where are those numbers at? Well, I know that they're starting to rebound. And uh, actually, both NDSU and UND are seeing some rebound. Bismarck State College is doing pretty well. Dickinson State says it is really good numbers uh, since the pandemic has eased. So, yeah, a lot of the colleges are seeing upticks in enrollment. That's a good thing. Okay. What's going on with the Better Bismarck campaign? This is a March blitz. They're trying to raise money to combat homelessness. That's correct. Now, homelessness, according to the Better Bismarck campaign, can be caused by substance abuse or, or maybe some financial things that might and be related to su- and mental health conditions. And there could be some financial things that are that are tied to that. So they want to get to the point where they're going to cut down on substance abuse. They're going to help people with mental health issues, and they're going to make sure that people aren't sleeping on the streets at night. What is the homeless rate in Bismarck? You know, I don't know for sure because that number keeps changing a little bit. Right. Okay. So the money that they're trying to raise is more on the preventing homelessness than maybe building structures, or That for is example. correct, yes. That okay. Is correct. And how are they doing on the campaign? Uh, so far, so good. You know, they had a goal of $10,000 to start out with, and if they didn't make the goals. They, they're really close. They're very confident that the next goal is going to be uh, done because they're, they've recruited businesses to help them with this. Okay. So businesses will have placards in their windows and things like that, okay. and you can donate there. So this is all private stuff. Is there money from the state, uh, for example, that's coming to this campaign? Uh, We don't know for sure yet, but there's a possibility because they're talking about something from, you know, Department of Human Services. So so watch that. Watch that space. Okay. Uh, An interesting story this week uh, regarding the Conservation Reserve Program uh, and some land in North Dakota. There used to be uh, roughly three and a half million acres that were in this reserve program. They weren't being farmed. Um, That was 15 years ago. Now it's about a million. What are the reasons behind the decline? Better farm prices. but People Mm. were getting more money for crops than they were making off CRP payment. And now there's an effort by the Biden administration to get people back into CRP, take some of that what you could call maybe marginal land out of CRP and then use it for for wildlife habitat. And I remember at one point they were talking CRP in in a legislative hearing. This is several years ago. And the people at Game and Fish said it has been the greatest thing since sliced bread in terms of developing habitat for wildlife. Right. And um, a lot of people do come to the state for hunting. That's exactly right. Hmm. Plus, you have bird watchers here, too. Certainly. Um, What are some of the other reasons uh, to have land in Conservation Reserve? It looked like there was some um, 
water and wind issues that came up. That's correct. You know, because there are wetlands that are along with that, and then they're, you know, retaining water. And if you if you take them out of cropland, because this crop has to be, you know, plowed, mm-hmm. that will stop wind erosion or at least cut down on wind erosion. Okay. So if they are able to make more money than they used to be able to uh, doing these farming techniques, whether they've changed it or just because of commodity prices, what is the USDA doing to try to encourage more of that land to actually stay in that conservation reserve program? The information and, as you said, having a little bit more money that might be available for CRP. And that it, it makes some sense because farmers right now – have an issue with, you know, input costs. Mm -hmm. So maybe this might be another incentive for them to put land in CRP programs. There was a read-in today at the library. This is about censorship Mm -hmm. in Bismarck. It was was the two bills. One is a House bill. One is a Senate bill that would take certain books off the shelves of libraries. And libraries, if the library director did not comply, the library director could be fined or put in jail or both. So they're saying that this is this is a restriction of freedom of expression, freedom of speech. So they had about 200 people in the front of the Veterans Memorial Public Library in Bismarck, and they had a silent protest. They brought a bunch of books to read, so they were reading. And uh, there, there wasn't any chanting or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They were carrying buttons playing, you know, all books uh, should be available, things like that. But... It was really kind of an impressive event as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. When they talk about the people who would be in favor of censorship, when they mention things like obscenity uh, and and standards, is this decided on a state level or on a national level? Like who decides what's obscene? Well, it's even even down to the local level. It's local – Local mores is what they said. Oh, okay. So something theoretically could be banned in Bismarck but fine in Mandan. Possibly. Hmm. That is possible. Okay. Uh, How many people did you say were there? A little over 200. And uh, if you heard our story, (laughs) we quoted somebody who is very familiar to public radio listeners who was there too. I did hear Claire Jenkinson on the news, yes. <laughs> uh, it is very busy right now in Bismarck because there's some stuff going on, too, with the Friends of the Rail Bridge there. Right. There was a hearing, and this has to do with with a, a permit because the state uh, has declared that the Missouri River is part of its sovereign assets. So there had to be an, a permit issued by the state to allow them to construct a new bridge. So at least that's what the Friends of the Rail Bridge have been arguing. Mm -hmm. And the Friends of the Rail Bridge came back and said, we need to preserve the 1883 bridge, historical, and we need to use it, you know, for a walking path to preserve it and also as a tourist attraction. Uh, BNSF says, well, we're going to have to do some major rerouting that's going to cost us a lot of money. And if we reroute uh, too close to the bridge, except in the footprint they've got, it could cause some water raise issues on the Missouri. Yeah, because that would change the water flow, I would guess. Right, that's correct. Okay. And there was a flood, remember, in the 2011. So yeah, uh, Otter Tail Power Company customers are seeing an increase in their monthly bills. Um, they this is because Otter Tail had to buy some very expensive. Uh, right, energy had, to then yep. give to its customers. They had to go on the market to do it, and it's because the Big Stone Power Plant in South Dakota was shut down for a few months there and was only brought back online at the end of February. So it had to go to the market, and basically it's a provider's market right now. So if you go out on the, on the free market, you have to bid for power. Okay. So they had to do that, and now now they have to collect on that. And it is uh, roughly $14 million for that their is correct. customers. Yes. Okay. At one point, they were, they were talking about doing it in one month, which would have been a $12 hit on the bill. So they spread it out over four months, and now it's about a $5 hit on the bill. And that's, that has to do with some timing and some mm. financial issues, why yeah. that's happened. But they say it lessen the blow 
on their customers. Yeah. Well, I know to get a rate increase, they do need to get permission from the Public Service Commission. Do they need to beforehand, before they purchase expensive power, do they ever need to get permission for that? Well, no, or they don't. Because it's it, an emergency. It's, just, it's an emergency situation. Okay. They, they lost their power. One of their power sources, one of the power plants, and they said, okay, well, they're part of the, the MISO system, which is the, the grid operator. So they go to MISO and say, okay, we need power. What's the going cost? Okay. The legislature talking about combining the various property and income tax relief bills into one. Does anything change besides just making it one big bill? That's a good question. See, the House has passed three different plans for providing income tax relief. So the the Senate Finance and Tax Committee is going to probably choose one of them mm. and then and then combine it with the Senate already passed this uh, property tax relief bill, which lowers the required property tax in mills if you want to receive school funding. So that's how it's going to be done. It's going to be done through K-12 per-pupil funding. So the more funding they can get into K-12 education, the lower okay. the mill rate will be in, and ostensibly that would be a lower property tax. Okay. So the, the bill is going to have a price tag of around $600 million, roughly $300 million for each tax type. Is the point of putting these into one bill just to make it easier, or do they think that it's more likely to pass as one instead of multiple separates? I think it's both. I think it's both. Okay. They're, they're trying to do it easy, and they're trying to have it as a package of tax relief to North Dakotans. All right. Dave, give yes. us a preview of what's coming up on the uh, legislative review. We talked with Senator Judy Lee of West Fargo, who chairs the Senate Human Services Committee, we talked a lot about uh, behavioral health, providing human services to rural areas of North Dakota, which has been a challenge. We talked about workforce and child care as part of workforce development. So we had a pretty wide-ranging discussion, and she also has a couple of opinions on some of the social issues that are going through the legislature. Excellent. And remind our listeners how they can hear that. It'll be at 6.30 Central Time tonight on Prairie Public, or if you want to watch it on television, it will be at 7.30 Central Time tonight on our television service. Excellent. And I don't know what your weekend plans are, but uh, my colleague, Craig Blumenshine, well, I guess he's our colleague, (laughs) uh, is in Bismarck. He is checking out the new Gateway to Science building. Um, We're told that it is just fantastic. So, yeah, people uh, in the Bismarck area, do go check that out, and uh, you can get a little radio tour of it next week on Main Street. And there will be a, a, a ceremonial cutting of the ribbon this afternoon on it. All right. We check in with News Director Dave Thompson once a week. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Ashley. Madeline is next. The Bismarck Mandan Symphony Orchestra continues the season with Between Two Cultures, March 11th at the Bell Mayhus Auditorium. Hear violin virtuoso Katia Moeller in a violin concerto of Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. And Bismarck's Jason Thome singing the Lakota Victory Song by Jared and Pichahaha Tate. More concert and ticket information can be found online at BismarckMandanSymphony.org. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. When you hear the fanfare, that means it's time for another movie review with Matt Olin. Matt, this time the title, Triangle of Sadness. It seems very funny, though, (laughs) despite the title. It is funny in parts. It's also social commentary. Uh, This is Swedish director Ruben Oslin's first kind of English language film, even though there are subtitles uh, at some points in the film. And it's up for Best Picture. He's up for Best Director. This was a big winner at the Cannes Film Festival. But I would say it's drawn mixed critical reaction and mixed public reaction. But I did like it for the most part. It is very weird, very strange, just like his hit film The Square was very strange five years ago. It follows two young influencer models played by Charles B. Dean and Harris Dickinson as they kind of navigate their way through life and end up on this celebrity-rich cruise with Woody Harrelson as the drunken, uh, not-fit-for-command captain. <laughs> and things get really crazy from there. So it's a, it's really a commentary on the 1% of society, 
but also on the switching of roles that eventually happens in this movie. And you'll have to see it to see what I'm talking about uh, with some of the lower level people on the cruise. Uh, It is laugh out loud funny in some parts. It's strange. It's weird. You're never quite sure what's going on. But I I would say it's not strange enough, though. It's not completely off the rails that that mainstream audiences will not find it entertaining. Harrelson is hilarious. Dolly DeLeon, who plays a janitor and cook on the ship, is really good in a supporting performance. She's gotten some critical accolades for this performance. It's kind of a scene-stealing performance, I would say, and she becomes a very important character as this movie moves along. Uh, but, yeah, it's just uh, it's kind of a look at the vapid lives of the, of the ultra-rich and the kind of the vapid lives of this this influencer played by Charles B. Dean, who tragically died last year at the age of 32. Uh, she was a South African actress, and also the Harris Dickinson, who plays this male model with not a brain in his head. So <laughs> a lot of social commentary. I love the cinematography. Uh, I, the ending is, is being discussed by people. They're not sh- quite sure what it means. You'll have to see what you think. But I do, it is one of my top 10 films of the year, I would say, for 2022. I'm interested in the social commentary mm-hmm. about it because you, you mentioned, you know, the 1%, but you're talking about these models. And it's very easy for people like you and me to just think of famous people as that wealthy. But really, if you look at the list of the Forbes billionaires, like you don't recognize most of those names because it's people, you know, who are in industry. And is is this on famous rich people? Or is this more on that 1% that you just don't even know how rich they are? It's the 1% that you don't know how rich they are. In fact, there is a Russian businessman on the cruise who explains how he got rich. And it's just like, what? It's not, it's not right. something it's you logistics. would ever think it's of it. Shipping. It it's involves like agriculture that. and pigs and things like that. Hmm. And there's another couple on the ship that's British that got rich through another strange, really strange way that you're not going to think of. And some of these influencers get very rich as well. So, no, these are not famous people on board. There are a couple uh, laugh-out-loud funny scenes. There's a couple fairly gross scenes, I would say, that happen on the <laughs> ship. But I think the film kind of expertly balances commentary with humor. I think if this would have just been a two-hour, 20-minute movie without humor, it would have been a long slog. So Mm. it's definitely black comedy, uh, satirical comedy. uh, And I think that's where Oslin kind of rides this very narrow line between are we supposed to laugh or are we not supposed to laugh in in uh, in this scene? Uh, but overall, I liked it. I, I think it's an interesting movie. I think it's a film that uh, will spark a lot of discussion afterwards. I've loaned this movie to a couple friends of mine who've, bo- who've, who've all liked it as well. And I've talked to people that hated it. So again, every year, Ashley, we seem to get these polar extreme films. Power of the Dog, Licorice Pizza in 2021, Triangle of Sadness is proving to be that way in 2022. A little bit with everything everywhere all at once. You know, some some of my friends have really liked it, some have not liked it. But I invite people to check it out. Woody Harrelson is the name person in the cast right. for sure. Pretty much the and only he is, big name. He's hilarious. He's hilarious when he finally shows up. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you mentioned that the director is Swedish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, there is a very, very famous Swedish director, uh, Bergman, Ingmar Bergman. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about his film, Fanny and Alexander. Um, won four of the six categories I was nominated for foreign language film 1983 cinematography i'm going to say mm-hmm. the other ones aren't always as big uh art direction yep and let's go costumes Co- yes that's what it won it was also nominated for director for bergman uh mm-hmm. not for best picture though i don't nope. think it was nope but also it was nominated screenplay? for best original okay. screenplay all right do you want to tell me who won best director that year It was James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment. All right. We've been in the movies with Madeline. So I was inquiring about the word Dutchman. My understanding of a Dutchman is that it is a, it's a patch of a much higher level. 
than just a, you know, just sort of a spackle it over kind of thing. I could eat this with one foot in the milk bucket. Join us this week on Away With Words. You know, he's really not all that in a bag of chips. Saturday at 9 Central, 8 Mountain, here on Prairie Public. This is Dakota Date Book for March 3rd. The early white settlers in North Dakota tended to cluster around the army forts located along the Red, James, Cheyenne, and Missouri Rivers. The rivers allowed for easier delivery of supplies, since overland transportation was slow and difficult. That changed for Dakota Territory when the railroads arrived in the early 1870s. New settlers and supplies to support the growing economy could now arrive quickly and conveniently. The development of the railroad was a haphazard process that did not happen overnight. England pioneered the railroad starting in the 17th century. The United States began to catch up when an English engineer designed a system at Lewiston, New York in 1764. There were, however, some significant obstacles to the development of an effective national railroad. There was no standardized railroad gauge. The width of the track varied between localities. The tracks for narrow gauge, standard gauge, and broad gauge railroads ranged in width from 3.5 feet to 6 feet. This meant that trains belonging to one railroad could not connect to tracks of another. On this date in 1863, Congress, in anticipation of the Transcontinental Railroad, authorized a standard railroad gauge of 4 feet 8.5 inches for the Union Pacific. It made sense to standardize, and there's no logical reason for what at first seems like a random measurement. It began in England. The first railway there also used a gauge of 4 feet 8.5 inches. It was a logical choice because it approximated the width of horse-drawn wagons, and the first locomotive pulled a train using such wagons. But why were wagons and carriages that wide? They were designed for roads that were originally built by the Romans, designed to accommodate Roman chariots. Deep ruts were worn into those roads over the years, so wagons were designed to stay in those ruts so they wouldn't be shaken apart. The railroads played an important role in the development of North Dakota. In an odd quirk of history, they run on rails that could accommodate a Roman chariot. Today's Dakota Datebook is written by Carol Butcher. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota. The pop rap hip-hop sensation Macklemore is back after a tough pandemic. I had this voice in my head. It's like the disease of addiction was resurrected. And when that happens, it's only a matter of time until I decide to listen to it. He shares his journey from relapse to recovery to the inspiration for his latest album. That and all the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Starting at 7 a.m. Central, right here on Prairie Public. That's it for this Friday edition of Main Street. Coming up Monday on the show, it's back and better than ever. The North Dakota Gateway to Science has reopened in its new building, and we get a tour of all the exciting features. That's coming up Monday on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.